All right, thank you everybody for joining. Today, this is a webinar conversation on Def Jam's past, present, and future. As most of you probably know, my name is Dan Runcie. I'm the founder of Trapital, and I am joined today by Gary Suarez, who runs a great, awesome newsletter that I think you all should subscribe to called Cabbages that covers rap music, especially on the indie side and some of the stories that don't get talked about, does great work. Oh, Gary, thank you. And I'm glad you can join. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, it, it's it's one of those things where uh, by doing the newsletter, it's been really fun to be able to do cabbages and kind of focus on indie artists. But oftentimes the way that I approach that is I do a, an essay to kind of bring people in. And a few times in the past year, uh, I've really stuck it to Def Jam and really been like, what, what, what do you guys do? And what do you do wrong? And I, I apologize in advance if anybody has uh, any sensitivities, because I do curse a lot in my regular day to day life. And so it can easily slip out. But uh, getting back to that, I'm trying very hard, which still means I'm going to curse. Nonetheless, nonetheless, um, I will say that Def Jam uh, kind of has been on my mind. And so when I was approached about doing this by you, uh, it seemed like a really good opportunity uh, to talk about these things, but also to uh, look for a way forward, which I think is uh, is key to all this. But we'll get to that after we talk about all the other stuff. Agreed, agreed. Yeah. And for those that know and probably following us, You've probably seen both of us have had some critical thoughts about Def Jam in the past, but I promise you, this will not be a Def Jam bash session. There was a lot of great that has happened, too, that we'll talk about. Just so you know the flow of the conversation, we'll kick it off by providing some background on some of the recent changes that have happened at this record label. We're going to focus mostly on the past 10 years, so the past two leaders of Def Jam that have made some of the most moves, that being Steve Bartles, that was in the early 2010s, and then leading on to Paul Rosenberg. After we talk about them, we'll talk specifically about what is the current state of Def Jam, what do we like, what do we not like, how to fix that. And then after that, we'll talk about who we think should run Def Jam. Those people that have been following hip hop, this is probably one of the most interesting questions. People always have their lists. Gary and I both have some ideas. We'll share the names we have and why. And then that whole part of the conversation there should take about 45 minutes. Each section of the show, probably 15 to 20 minutes. And then after that, we'll have 15 minutes at the end for Q&A. So as we're talking, if you have questions, feel free to put them in the chat box that's in Zoom. I see some people um, already introduced themselves, continue to do that. We'll go through at the end and answer some of the best questions that come up. But please let them come. I'm sure everyone here probably has some type of deep connection or thoughts with Def Jam in some way. It's definitely been really passionate for us, and that's why we're going to dive into this. So, uh, yeah, it's it's something else, man. But yeah, I will kick things off. And before we start off with the Steve Bartles era of Def Jam, let's just take a quick 30 seconds to bring folks back. So Def Jam, of course, started in the early 80s, was one of the key brands that really signified hip-hop and was hip-hop for so long for an entire generation of folks, especially people that are your older millennials, younger Gen X folks. That's really, I think, the age range that looks most fondly to Def Jam and what it was able to bring to hip-hop. Continued on with the late 80s. You have LL Cool J, Beastie Boys, all them. And then 90s, once they're able to team up with Jay-Z, you get DMX, you get 
So you have the Rockefeller. You also have Murder, Inc. It was such a time when New York hip hop was so synonymous with Def Jam. But then things start to change up a little bit. And I think some of that change started around the time when Jay-Z was named the CEO president of Def Jam. He had uh, about a three-year run as the head of Def Jam. And there were a lot of things that I think came out of Jay-Z's tenure, just in terms of his focus and what he wanted to do. I think he quickly grew frustrated, though, because he wanted to have a bit more autonomy than the major record label system would have wanted him to. You can go back and read a number of the interviews there. He really just wanted to do more creative things, like how can we tie in merch? How can we tie in other types of events and Def Jam was still operating the same way that many traditional record labels do. How do we monetize our back catalog, legacy acts, all those things? And he eventually, that's part of the reason why he left and started Rock Nation, so he could do a lot of the things that he couldn't do as the CEO of Def Jam. And then after, um, what do you call it? After Jay-Z, then you have the L.A. Reid era of a few years where he was pseudo-chief, but then he became chief. But I think his era became a bit controversial for some just because there were a few decisions that made some headlines. Like he had tried to get Shine to come sign to the label and spent a bunch of money to go do that and get Shine. And we're talking... They were talking like 2010, 2011. So it wasn't like when Shine first blew up in like the early 2000s. So that was a bit questionable. People felt like he was really focused on Neo and maybe not as much else. Then Joey Manda comes in less than a year that he was at the helm. And then that's when we get to the Steve Bartles era of Def Jam. Steve Bartles was a music industry exec for years. And for him, this role was just an extension of a lot of the work he'd already done. But he really took Def Jam in a different direction. And I think this is where the narrative starts to change a bit. Because up to this point, Def Jam was had this brand of New York hip hop. When I think about Def Jam, especially from a lot of my childhood, I think back to those images of the Hard Knock Life Tour. That is what Def Jam really meant to me when I'm looking at who were the headliners, who were the people that ended up being in Def Jam Vendetta. It was that whole lineage and connection. But uh, <laughs> did you play Def Jam Vendetta, Gary? <laughs> what a game, man. What a game. Are we going to have a whole nother... I know, right? It's a, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they had a whole bunch of them too. But... Yeah, Bartles took the organization in a little bit of a different direction. It became less of that brand and it really became more of a business. And by that, I'm really talking about some of the acts that he was able to help bring on and where the focus changed. He brought on some great Canadian artists that were big at the time. This was Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber had released, um, what's the album? Purpose. I think that's the one that had um, Sorry and Love Yourself and all those songs. It sold a ton of records. He also had um, Alessia, uh, uh, Alessia Cara and she was blowing up as well. So artists that were doing their thing, but it definitely was a bit of a different identity of what we came to be known as Def Jam. And it really highlighted what I think a lot of record labels have shifted with where what the difference between running a business versus running a brand. And I think Bartles did a really great job running a business because he got some really lucrative acts. Keep in mind, you had um, Channel Orange that had come out um, around the same time, Frank Ocean's um, debut studio album there. Um, and there was just a lot of 
success from a commercial perspective, but the brand really didn't necessarily have that same true identity and connection with New York hip hop that it once did. And like a lot of execs, you can't stay there forever, even though Bartle's time was a bit more, I don't want to say controversial, but took the label in a different era. He still got a send off from Universal at the end of it. People were pretty happy with the work that he had done there. Some people weren't, but you know, there was clearly enough from like a business perspective that he was able to get some lucrative acts. But then is when, you know, things shift, he ends up leaving and then uh, Paul Rosenberg comes in. But before we go to Paul Rosenberg or any of that, um, Gary, I know you've covered the Bartles administration era of Def Jam quite a bit. What were your thoughts from his time? Like what really stuck out for you? Well, I have covered his era. Uh, I met him once uh, at a Big Sean uh, listening event, and he had read some of my work um, and seemed to agree with it. So maybe I'm on the right path or maybe I'm way off. Um, But my feeling about uh, the Steve Bartles era was it really was building on the kind of mishmash that was the Island Def Jam years. And he's kind of, you know, he you have to remember that he was somebody who worked closely with L.A. Reid. And so he has a real history uh, with Def Jam even before leading it. And so, you know, when you think about the years before Steve Bartels, you think about Steve Bartels, you think about, you know, some of the artists like Rihanna, for example, kind of coming to the fold. And like some of these these artists who kind of fall into these areas where, you know, under Jay-Z, for example, and you have this R&B thing. And it used to be that Def Jam back in the day would establish an entirely new imprint in order to bring on an R&B artist. And so because of the mishmash that was Island Def Jam, you're able to have R&B artists, which really foreshadows the entire 2010s. And as we are now, we'll get to it later, the 2020s for Def Jam. You know, Bieber and Alessia Cara, you know, are not necessarily what you think about when you think about Def Jam. And they were kind of released on Def Jam in the Steve Bartles era, in spite of uh, Def Jam as a label. Um, but from a business side, it made a lot of sense. No doubt those releases and those successes paid for a lot of other rapper rollouts. You know, um, you also have to keep in mind that Steve Bartles was there for some very good years with uh, us on the hip hop side. You know, he inherited Jeezy and Jadakiss, uh, who continued to do, you know, top five and top 10 uh, Billboard charting albums. Uh, he was also there uh, for Big Sean. And for when Big Sean really blew up under good, uh, he was also there for Logic, when Logic rose. And so all those sales and chart wins, you know, I think that they, you know, if you look at it from, yeah, there might be some people who didn't necessarily like what he did there. But in terms of internal targets and numbers, I have no doubt in my mind that he, you know, he made a lot of people on the executive side very happy, (laughs) the shareholder side very happy, you know. Where the damage is done in that era is that it un, it inadvertently set the stage for hip-hop to be uh, more the purview of Def Jam's partner labels as opposed to Def Jam itself, you know, good or visionary and whatnot. Um, there were also some artist losses that were real uh, shame. You know, this, it, he, like, he lost Rick Ross, you know, when, when Rick Ross was up for uh, – up for his uh, contract renewal, Rick Ross went elsewhere, but he went through Epic. Um, so it's like, while Rick Ross was no longer necessarily selling the same rate as he was at a certain stage, what had absolutely happened was one of the key things that had been keeping Def Jam in people's minds as a hip hop label was they would continue to release records from rappers who were 
for lack of a better term, album artists. Um, and then you get, we'll get into legacy artist stuff in a little bit, but they were album artists, meaning they weren't necessarily trying to break these people at this point. It was like, you go to these guys because you know that they can make an album worth of music. And I think that speaks volumes to what he was able to um, perpetuate. But losing somebody like Rick Ross foreshadows the potential issues of you know, when they come later, which we'll get into around Jeezy, for example, um, and so on and so forth. But overall, I think it was a, a great period for um, for Def Jam as a business, but it absolutely did put some... Uh, uh, some tarnish on the brand and uh, that sort of seems to inform what Rosenberg walked in uh, aiming to rectify at least uh, in some respect. Agreed. And one thing that you said before we get into Rosenberg that just reminded me with the whole Island Def Jam. Um, well, now, you know, it's since separated, but there was a time back when LA Reed was leading up, the island side of things, he was he had signed Lady Gaga back in 2006, let her go right, maybe like a year or two before Just Dance or um, uh, what's her first album, The Fame or whatever, right before Lady Gaga had blown up. And maybe think two things. One, wow, that's just crazy. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what, you know, he's been about it, spoken about it publicly. I mean, I have no idea what he was thinking at the time. But secondly, what? How different would Def Jam have looked if Lady Gaga was on Def Jam? And you have like Gaga's run leading into Bieber's run, and then into Lesia Cara. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's a lot of what ifs and and fun things to play there in terms of figuring that out. But it would have only contributed to this problem. I mean, yes, we all know um, any of us uh, in this room who happen to be Lady Gaga fans and Kanye West fans know that there was that tour that was supposed to happen. So there was an idea that there was some synergy between fan bases in terms of a pop sensibility at some stage. It probably would have positioned Def Jam to be even more a pop label. Um but I don't necessarily feel like the listenership had a real grasp on Def Jam as a brand. I don't think that Justin Bieber's listeners think about him as a Def Jam artist. And I think Agreed. that's part of the issue. So I don't think that would have been the case with uh, with Lady Gaga either. You know, when we see Jadakiss, we think of him as a Def Jam artist. But I don't think that applies necessarily to Alicia Cara. On the books, inside the four walls of the building... Yes, he she is a Def Jam artist, but is is that actually the case in terms of public perception? Less so, unless they have a complaint. And if, if a stand, if a group of stands or a fandom have a uh, have a grievance, they know exactly which uh, which label. They have the phone numbers and everything. <laughs> right, that's a good point. And sometimes I, at first I was wondering, okay, is this a hip hop thing where I think people in hip hop just care more about labels themselves? And while it may be that, I do think in general, if you are like a uber mega pop star and you've kind of broken out of this particular niche you're in, people probably disassociate you from that. I mean, I would think about like someone like Beyonce, like how many people really could be like, oh yeah, she's a Columbia artist. Like, I, I don't know if many people would really say that outside of people that are deep in it. I mean, that is really the uh, the, the, the the shame of Island Def Jam is that it absolutely contributed to this idea of taking a brand that was so well known that people would buy releases based on that iconic, easily recognizable logo, you know, 
and the way that you know some people still do with certain indie labels or certain indie artists or certainly in the record store days you know and you don't do that <laughs> you don't necessarily do that when you're dealing with pop artists it's like it just doesn't really work that way uh, certainly not in the u.s I, I can't say that for for other places but it just like you know, university, you know, Universal has so many different brands under its umbrella. And, you know, I think each of those brands could warrant their own webinar, uh, you know, of terms of successes and failures. So I think a lot of people um, who have, who follow Def Jam from, say, my generation, you know, I'm somebody who's, you know, I'm, it's been around at least long enough to to remember the artists you talked about at the beginning of this conversation and all the way through to uh, through into the 2010s. I certainly noticed when Justin Bieber uh, was beside there and I wrote about it. I was writing about it for Forbes and I thought it was a good business decision, but I wasn't thinking about it from a brand perspective at that time. I was thinking about it purely as uh, as a business choice, as a revenue decision. Right. And it's a hard one to knock. It definitely is. But Yeah. With that, let's let's dive into the Paul Rosenberg era. So Bartles leaves end of 2017. It's announced that Eminem's manager, Paul Rosenberg, will be taken over. What were your thoughts on the Rosenberg era? I mean, I really should preface all of this, and I'm sure the chat might. I, I suspect the chat will blow up, and I apologize in advance <laughs> if this hurts your feelings, people. But I have never been an Eminem fan. Never. And I was there when they were pushing him on alt-rock radio in 1999. I was, you know, I was a college student and I, I was their target for Eminem. I assure you, he did not connect with me. Maybe call me a, a snob or call me whatever you want to call me, but that never was for me. But hugely successful artist. And you have to give Paul Rosenberg credit for um, working with him all these years, managing him for, you know, some like two decades um, and then building with him, you know, on paper, Rosenberg seems like a good fit. Co-founded Shady Records and Shady Records, while we largely associate it with Eminem, is also Shady Aftermath is 50 Cent and the G-Unit movement. It's Slaughterhouse. You know, you don't get Joe Budden, the hugely successful podcaster today without Slaughterhouse. And it was... Compounding that, he also has Goliath Management, uh, which he's managed various artists over the years, including Action Bronson and Danny Brown, you know, well-known names in hip-hop and well-respected names in hip-hop. So when it was announced, I think it was in Q3 or Q4 of the preceding year that he was going to replace Steve Bartles. They gave they gave Bartles kind of a, 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 long, uh, a long outro, uh, which is fine. Um, but it was, he seemed very keen on bringing Def Jam back into the hip hop space with, if you've been listening to, to what Dan and I have been saying for the past 20 minutes or so, you should know that that's an idea that we are amenable to is, you know, trying to reinforce Def Jam as a hip hop label and hip hop bona fides, you know, Rosenberg and his A&Rs went out and signed a ton of new hip hop acts. And there were a lot of digital only releases uh, that came out uh, through that, uh, but none of them hit. He gave these artists uh, digital releases that arrived with pretty much without warning, without much fanfare. Um, they didn't seem to, because you have to keep in mind that a lot of what I am saying comes from the press side. I'm on the mailing lists of all these major labels and tons of indies. So when they're pushing these artists for press coverage, I get the press release. And so 
I'd find out about these artists when they dropped an entire album's worth of music, and there was no particular buzz behind that. And you could see that some of those uh, releases didn't exactly get love from the streaming services in terms of uh, placement and promotion either. Um, one of the artists they seemed to have hope for was Nimic Revenue, who's a young MC from Minnesota. Uh, I interviewed her for a piece uh, in 2019 as part of a, a piece about Def Jam for Forbes and uh, very talented, seemed like a, a, a good a good fit for this uh, vision of what they wanted Def Jam to be. Um, but it simply uh, didn't work. They, they put out her record like, and they put out a reloaded version of it as well uh, within the same calendar year. I don't know if she's still signed to the label. If there anybody is from the Rosenberg era who's part of that signings, it would be her. Um, again, I don't know necessarily whether these artists who were picked up or dropped or are simply in limbo, uh, as sometimes is the case uh, with music. Uh, the truth is none of them had... Uh, big enough profiles necessarily as individual artists. And I say that because one of the strategies that they tried was this thing called Undisputed, which and I don't know if you recall this. It was a compilation uh, that they put together that was born out of a rap camp. Um, oh, yeah, was, I remember that. Yeah. Where these newer artists came in to studio with these producers. They met and they collabed and it made this record and it was supposed to kind of be this, you know, definitive statement of this is what Def Jam is now. You know, I still have a, a long sleeve uh, t-shirt that they sent me as a promo item for it. Um, and that's a, that's a very nice to pull out on cold days. Um, but the reality was that despite a lot of good press coverage and all the right outlets, it wasn't a particularly strong compilation and it ultimately uh, may put all their eggs into one basket in terms of this rebrand, if you will, the soft rebrand of it as a hip hop label. So that's sort of one of the defining things about the Rosenberg era. Another is Rosenberg was there for the disastrous good music mini album run that, uh, that those uh, seven song releases and the chaos surrounding each one, which absolutely tarnished both Def Jam and good music as a label. You can say that you liked Pusha T's album. I certainly loved it. Um, you can see Daytona. You can say that you like Kids See Ghosts um, because you got a Kid Cudi means a lot to you. And you can say that you really like the Tiana Taylor album, um, which again, not something I would argue against. But the reality is, is those projects were badly rolled out, not necessarily Def Jam's fault, but it does hurt them and hurt that partnership. Under the Rose, again, you had Logic, but then Logic pivoted to Twitch. So you lost that towards the end of the Rosenberg era. Um, I really define it as Rosenberg missed out on three distinct waves uh, in hip hop during his two years there. One was Drill particularly the Brooklyn drill and New York drill movement. Um, two was this explosion of women rappers that we are uh, seeing now in, in tremendous form. And I hope never ends because it's about damn time um, that major labels uh, and whatnot are behind these artists. And then lastly, the Griselda wave. Uh, and I'll talk about the Griselda wave in just a second. I could add a fourth and say emo rap, but again, um, I think those three are, are damning enough. Uh, the question becomes why? Why is it that Rosenberg was unable to 
or otherwise didn't capitalize on these movements that other labels, other major labels within Universal uh, and outside uh, were able to. Uh, there's some other theories that go around that he had his hand in too many other things. He was still managing Eminem. Uh, he still has other business ventures. Uh, he didn't have necessarily his, uh, his whole body in the chair, if you will, uh, is one of the theories that exists about that. And I think that's worth considering because if we, when we think about these things, we want, we often get people who are there, like, you know, the understanding about Jay-Z is that he was involved during his time he was not you know someone who kind of came in when he felt like coming in and so i think that if you don't have a an exec who is just kind of a record label guy who's just a record label guy then you and you don't have a personality figure you end up with somebody who's kind of in there and not in there that's again one theory um well let's get a little deeper into it because the griselda wave is an interesting one because as any Griselda fan knows one of the things uh, that really blew up uh, West Side Gun and Conway as artists was the announcement that uh, there was a signing to Shady Records, which again, Rosenberg as co-founder of Shady Records, he gets credit for that. Um, interestingly enough, the way that that was structured was it allowed the Griselda artists to continue to release their various uh, mixtapes uh, and commercial projects independently with the idea that there would be album projects and there would be a group Griselda record. And we saw all three, we saw the Griselda record come out. Um, so again, he's trying to push Griselda on a different label while also doing Def Jam. Benny the Butcher is not part of the solo deals in the Griselda Shady arrangement. And so Benny the Butcher, who had burden of proof come out last year uh with hit boy and be a tremendously successful record the most the highest charting of any griselda album on the billboard charts um and really a great image mover for him as well he's going to have a, a extraordinary year in 2021 uh, i have no doubt of that in my mind rosenberg had an opportunity uh at least in theory to try to bring him in instead um Benny went with a deal with E1 uh, and uh, has his own Black Soprano family imprint through there. So it just seems like there are a lot of missteps. There are a lot of missed opportunities. And then there's the question of whether or not Rosenberg had too much on his plate with dealing with Eminem, who decided to release albums during all this time, um, as well as... Um, dealing with his own uh, work with Goliath management. At the end of the day, the way that it seems like they parted uh, Def Jam and Rosenberg was he has an imprint there called Goliath Records. Now, I haven't heard a damn thing about Goliath Records since uh, since that parting press release. And uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether it is going to be uh, uh, much of anything, to be perfectly honest, but it's, uh, it's part of that arrangement. That's for sure. Yeah, that... That was a great recap. I tried to put myself into the shoes of Universal when Rosenberg got hired, right? Because I'm like, why? Like, what was the attraction? And the thing I keep going back to is he was someone that had put Eminem on. So that means by being able to help Eminem succeed as much as he did, you're catering to people that like hip hop, but also all of the people that don't normally like hip hop that 
are playing in like pop and like rock and other areas. We all know that Eminem translated very well to non-hip-hop crowds. So if you're thinking about that and you're like, okay, we have Bieber, we have Alessia Cara, maybe there's some overlap. Maybe that's the attraction of someone like a Paul Rosenberg. So I try to at least, you know, try to give some benefit of the doubt. But that said, once you get past all those things, yeah, I think the biggest thing you mentioned is the fact that there was just a lot of other things that he was focusing on and there wasn't as much time dedicated to this. And yeah, I think a lot of the time when you have another artist that is in talks of being the head of a label, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about who might be leading this, you know you're going to have people with multiple hands in there in things. But when you have a non-artist, I think normally you hope that you have someone that has a bit more focus. But I mean, I never would have guessed that Eminem would have put out three albums during the um, Paul Rosenberg's Def Jam tenure. Never would have guessed it. It's so hard for me not to curse right now. I'm really trying to keep this as PG-13 (laughs) as possible. But seriously, you put Rosenberg in that position and then you're just like, I almost feel bad for Rosenberg in that respect. It's just like, come on. Like he's trying to run this label and you're just like, well, okay, I'm just going to do the thing where you're going to have to pay a lot of attention to me right now. Uh, right 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 you know, yeah. and especially since like one of those albums was poorly received but charted well and, and did fine you know it's just sort of like there's there had to have been a lot of emails and i just feel like you know that's where these uh your artists like nimic revenue didn't get the the love that they uh needed at least not from the highest of levels i'm not i'm not putting rosenberg's faults on def jam staffers and i think i do want to make that really clear you know a and R decisions, like our A and R decisions, and they're ultimately the top is very much involved in a lot of this stuff. But it's like I think that you give people direction and you tell them what you're looking for, and they go and they do that. You know, if if Rosenberg was looking for a Megan the Stallion, they would have looked for and found a Megan the Stallion, and I don't think they were. Again, I might be wrong in the sense that they may have had conversations that you and I. We'll never know about that. We certainly wouldn't be privy to. I'm not going to rule out the possibility that conversations have happened with artists who we think they should have moved that just didn't pan out. What I would say is that if that is the case, then maybe it had something to do with Def Jam being diminished as a hip hop brand that may have sent somebody elsewhere. Right. Yeah, I think that's very likely. That's very likely. And those are the kind of things we'll never hear about it until someone does some like random podcast appearance five years from now. I was like, oh, yeah, I was actually going to talk to a dev kid before I signed with QC or something like that. Like, we were like maybe we'll hear something like that. The other thing I uh, forgot to mention, even outside of Eminem's albums, was they were getting ready for the whole 20-year anniversary of Marshall Mathers LP, which ran on for a very long time. Credit for them for milking it for all it's worth, but they ran the shit out of that anniversary. I mean, it was... (laughs) I did. I did. The the Band-Aid's off. Now he can let them rip. (laughs) But yeah, the... The Rosenberg era, the the other thing too, you mentioned the rap camp and it makes me think about labels as well because um, it reminded me of what, um, who is it? It reminded me of what 
um, Dreamville had done when they had had their Revenge of the Dreamers. And they also leveraged the press to do that. I remember when they had those summits, they had all of the journalists sharing their little infographics on Twitter and Instagram, and they created a buzz around it. But you're able to do that type of thing when you have a brand that people care about. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about this, about what separates you know a label from Dreamville, the way it's viewed today, as opposed to one from Def Jam. Um, and this is also tied into like how to fix it, but yeah, there's certain things I think that he tried and that the label tried and largely also probably, um, you know, universal wanted to see happen as well, but you really need to have some brand established to do those things. And when you're pushing things from a legacy perspective, I think it can be a bit tough. So yeah, I mean, any other thoughts before we pivot into what we would do to fix or improve things. The only thing I want to say is that the legacy thing is important because when you aren't signing hot new artists in the hip hop space, when you're not signing the hot new rapper who or the viral hit maker, then you're relying on your legacy artists. And I I did an interview with Jeezy in 2019 um, when TM103 was about to drop. And... There had been some talk about this being his final album. Obviously, it was not. We had the recession, too, this past year. Um, And it was fairly clear, one, that the interview that I got came from his own publicist as opposed to a label publicist. Um, And that he, while he was not, uh, well, he was very clear that he wasn't going to do another uh, volume in the TM series. Uh, he seemed to have some some he let a few thoughts slip and i did this piece for uh for vice uh he let some thoughts slip about kind of the negotiations with def jam that had occurred in terms of getting this and kind of how he got his masters back and you have to give jz credit as a businessman generally because his entrepreneurial spirit is what has absolutely made him such a, a powerhouse figure, not just in hip hop, but in the business in the business spaces as well beyond it. And I think it's a lot of credit that he gets for that. But I it was a little bit of letting some of that information slip in an interview that he kind of it seems like he'd strong armed Def Jam into getting his masters back in a business sense, in the negotiation sense, in the, do you want TM want, do you want new albums for me? This is why I haven't put out albums as frequently as I used to, because I'm trying to work out a deal where I get my stuff. And we're going to talk about Jeezy a little later uh, because there's been developments with him in uh, over 2020, but it was entirely possible that he could have pulled a, uh, pulled what Rick Ross did and moved on uh, during the Rosenberg era. And that would have been a pretty significant defection because it doesn't leave uh, much in there uh, to work with <laughs> in terms of legacy artists. You know, you still have Jadakiss, um, but that was uh, that was a concern, I think, especially, and I think we're going to get into it in a sec, but I think that was a real concern. Yeah, he... He was a cornerstone there, and I think he was one of the big people that came through the Jay-Z era when Jay-Z was leading things, and he stayed through, and he's been strong through ever since, and 
I think some people underrate his career. We don't need to go deep into him because I know we could talk about Jeezy for a while. But he is definitely a cornerstone for a lot of this. And you mentioned the business stuff. It reminds me of the verses that he had a couple of weeks ago with um, Gucci Man. And he's like, we need to have a real estate versus. And it was like, you know, those funny things he said. But it speaks to the, just how he thinks about things. He's just all about business now. So it's been it's been dope to see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's an adult. So how to fix Def Jam? What were the, what, what are the things? So I struggle with this. I'll be honest because I was trying to challenge myself how best to think about this. And I think it goes back to whether or not you want to focus on running a brand first or focus on running the business first. And plenty of labels have done both of them well, but Def Jam is just in this part where if you want to go back to this hip hop brand and many of the things that Paul Rosenberg did, tried to do what do you then do with someone like justin bieber who may very much become one of your cash cows for decades to come because of how big his songs are they all have like a billion streams on youtube and will likely still grow from that or do you try to replicate some of what you're seeing now from the brands and the labels that are brands and hip-hop that fans do care about like your qc's tde dreamville and so on I think that Def Jam may have an opportunity to try to regain some of that. But in a lot of ways, I feel like the better path now might be to continue on the path that it's on from trying to sign the best acts that you have. And I'm saying this as a hip hop fan, I would love to see everything come back. But I just don't know if that can happen. In a lot of ways, it makes Def Jam in some ways, no different than a Republic or a Columbia Records. And that's not a knock. Those labels have been around for a long time doing their thing. But there isn't truly like a brand of those labels as opposed to just this is a home for a superstar artist. You can look at our roster. This is who we have. If Def Jam wants to become that, and clearly I think Bartles was on that path, that might be the most likely path to success. But that said, I think there is something to the value of that back catalog and how you monetize that. And, you know, I look at the work uh, that that Motown has done in recent years. Obviously, Motown has become much more successful with a lot of the work that Ethiopia has done since she got over there. But it's kind of balancing two things, right? She's monetizing this very valuable back catalog, but knowing that this is a sound that just isn't in, but you're still having artists like Vince Staples that may come through or others that really care about this. And I think in some ways, Def Jam is probably closer to that than it might be to a QC. Yeah, I, I think I think what happened with Def Jam is that it has become less about the brand that was bought all those years ago and become like any other imprint. The problem is, is that it's still its name still carries weight in a way that, you know, those who remember Columbia records 40 years ago might don't have the same impression of Columbia records. Now Def Jam still has that. And it says a lot to how hip hop has grown uh, over, you know, the past 40 years and how it has as a, as a, as culturally as well as a recording business, you know, um, where we start to get into the prescriptive stuff in my view uh, it starts with leadership. And you know, even before we talk about direction of the label, it starts with leadership. You know, when Rosenberg, it was announced that Rosenberg was, was uh, departing, uh, it was announced simultaneously that Jeffrey Harleston uh, would be coming on as an interim chairman and CEO. Uh, 
I don't know if the people in this room know who Jeffrey Harleston is. Uh, he's general counsel and executive vice president of business and legal affairs for Universal Music Group. He's also now in charge of Def Jam in an interim capacity. That raises red flags to me immediately uh, upon hearing this in uh, 2019, uh, that we were about to bring on somebody in an interim capacity, which suggests that something's wrong, that there's instability, um, and that it's somebody who has who's on the you know executive board and has tremendous responsibilities. Um, that it just seems like while this while from everything that I understand, he's he's a, a known industry figure, he's liked, but he's not the public face that Def Jam needs after a, a, a after Paul Rosenberg. Um, it, the reality is that Def Jam as Def Jam as a hip hop brand has been deeply damaged. You know, you can't have Justin Bieber as the face of your brand and still call yourself a hip hop label. You know, with all respect to the social media strategy that Def Jam does, which relies very much a mix of the contemporary and the classic. It's like you can post a cool image of 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 something from back in the day, but it's just like this is not the same place that LL Cool J was before. <laughs> it's just not. You know, you have the added wrinkles of this instability of the Kanye West working relationship. We were supposed to get an album last year. Instead, we got a manic run for president. And I say manic in the most serious sense. I'm not using it as a dig. There is a mental health issue that uh, it seems apparent from an outsider's perspective, and I hope he gets the help that he needs. But it certainly stopped the label from getting a win in a pandemic year. There was one of the few things that Harleston's name was attached to, at least in a publicity standpoint, was the catastrophic uh, Public Enemy re-signing, um, where it ultimately didn't, the album, well, no one expected it to be number one, it's Public Enemy, it's in 2020, but it didn't even chart on the Billboard 200. That felt like a real miss. You know, yes, Harleston should get credit for the wins that, uh, that Def Jam did have, last year. Number ones for Janae Iko, for Big Sean, for Bieber. But all those folks were there before. That's not a direction. So again, the first step to me towards fixing Def Jam is putting someone in that leadership position. Beyond beyond the, the leadership question, I do think Def Jam is fixable. I think the right signings and positioning can help the brand move forward, do some reconciliation with hip hop. But I think we have to recognize the reality and identify strengths. The label is too diverse now to be just a hip hop label. Pop and R&B are in the mix fully, and you're not going to sub them out just to uh, please purists. However, nostalgia, in addition to the partnerships like with Good Music and, and others, is part of what drives the impression of Def Jam as a hip hop brand. So leaning into that makes sense. So Def Jam on the hip hop side doesn't necessarily need to be about finding the next new young kid who's spitting, you know, and I'm going to put an asterisk on that just for, for a moment, but um, it doesn't necessarily need to be about that. You know, we live in a time where rappers who are approaching or over the age of 40 are not only commercially viable, but critically acclaimed, you know, for Def Jam, they have senior statesmen on board, 2 Chains, Jadakiss, Pusha T. Um, so those are in there. Um on the more junior side, at the uh, at the tender age of 30, you still have YG. YG gives you that West Coast connection. He makes hits. Um, what else can we mind in that vein? It might be a niche that might be able to work into there. And then please, for the love of God, sign a woman who can rap. 
You need a Megan Thee Stallion. You need a Flo Millie. You need a Mulatto. You need a Cash Doll. You need somebody who represents this wave because Def Jam is absolutely flailing without it. Um, and lastly, uh, we need a new full-time CEO because we haven't had one since Steve Bartles. Agreed. So who do you think that should be? Well, I have my my picks, um, and I think that uh, each of them have their own merits, and I think they're there, I'd be curious to hear kind of your thoughts on them, and then also I'd love to hear yours. Um, my first pick is uh, Jamila Thomas, uh, who uh, is currently Atlantic Records' uh, Senior Director of Marketing. So again, not uh, in the Def Jam fold. Uh, you might not recognize her name, uh, some of the people who are watching this, um, but she's responsible, or one of the two people responsible for Blackout Tuesday, the hashtag, the show must be paused. Remember all those black squares on Instagram? It came because two black women decided in this industry that change needed to happen. Her visibility right now is high, and she could bring a new energy to the label's direction and to its signings. Um, I have uh, I have confidence that uh, somebody with that marketing standpoint has a keen sense of what people want, and I think she can really speak to the moment uh, in a big way. Uh, we mentioned Ethiopia, I have to marry him before, uh, president of Motown Records, and also the president of Urban Music at Universal. So Def Jam is already her problem. <laughs> It's that she's already part of the issue there. Um, so she's done tremendous work at Motown, not just on, uh, you know, getting the most out of the back catalog, but she's done great things through diversification of sound there. You know, it's an iconic label that survived all these years, and there's still great artists who are uh great and popular artists who are on there. You know, you think about Lil Yachty, for example, who I think has brought in a good bit of money for uh, the label, not as necessarily as a recording artist, but because of the nature of his 360 deal and all the partnerships that go within that. Um, so I think Ethiopia is another uh, strong contender uh, for that, should she decide to uh, make the lateral move uh, away from uh, Motown and over to uh, to Def Jam. Yes, that would technically mean that we wouldn't have somebody who'd be full-time, but I feel pretty confident about given the fact that both of her remits are would, would be very much in line with each other um, that I think she's somebody who could multitask in a, in a good way. She's already shown that she could do that. And she's right. only, she's only what, 41. Like she's young. She can do tremendous things. Right. The multitasking matters. It's not like she's dropping an album or like managing someone that's about to drop several Three albums. <laughs> you know, she's not, yeah. It's like, there's, I think that there's something where like, I, I have much more confidence in her abilities uh, to, to turn Def Jam around in that sense. Um, and then my last pick is somebody who we've talked about a lot on this call today, and that's Jeezy. You know, as we saw from the, the recent verses, his personal brand is strong, even if he's not selling records the way that he used to. You know, he understands hip hop, South, North, East, West, all different flavors. He could also help bring some highly respected legacy rappers from his generation or otherwise into the fold. You know, I think that a public enemy uh, while it certainly precedes him, that sort of move, if done with somebody like a Jeezy, uh, the right artists uh, coming into the fold might be good wins, working with good producers. You know, you think about like, while Nas's latest album, uh, which is Mass Appeal with Def Jam, wasn't like a runaway chart hit by any stretch of the imagination, it did great for his image, which has been absolutely tarnished in recent years uh, due to, among other things, uh, his uh, association with Kanye West on that dismal, 
Nasir record. And then uh, much more seriously, uh, the accusations of, uh, of domestic violence, domestic abuse from his uh, ex-wife, Khalees. So uh, this release that he did this year, King's Disease, really uh, put him back in a lot of people's favor. And it had a lot of people uh, speaking in superlatives about uh, him, uh, who's not particularly uh, been the most uh, reliable album artist uh, of his generation. So I think that Jeezy might be able to tap into that formula uh, quite well. And more than anything else, Def Jam knows Jeezy's value. They announced a deal with him uh, late last year. Uh, he's senior advisor to the chairman, right now Jeffrey Harlison, um, specifically for artist development and r So it just seems to me that he's already in a position where if he wanted it, he could. Yes, that would mean that he might have to uh, put some capos in charge of his other businesses, real estate, and the other entrepreneurial adventures that he has, and he has so many. Um, so I do feel like he would have to devote the time to it. But I think if the if the money's right, I think you can get Jeezy into the room. I think you can get him actually to do that and actually commit to it. Yeah, all great picks. I I mean, I especially like the first two. I'd be surprised if they happen for the first two. I think the most likely one is probably Jeezy of those three. I still hesitate with artists that I think, you know, are working on a bunch of different things. You'll probably see that a bit reflected in my picks, but he is a rock star. And I do think having people that can be the brand that can excite people helps a lot. And that's something that I think is probably missing with some of the labels that don't necessarily have brands. But I'll run quickly through the ones I have, and then let's save the last five minutes for questions, and then we can just pick some of the best ones there. Um, The first person I have um, is Michael Kaiser. He is the president of Black Music at Atlantic Records. And I think in general, Atlantic Records low-key has been one of the most important labels when it comes to hip-hop and R&B music. You just look at what they've been able to do with Cardi B, Uzi, Corday, like there's just a strong line of artists that are coming through. Gucci, even though Gucci has had his, you know, on and off issues with Atlantic, there still is a strong pipeline there. I think he's put in good work. He's gotten press for the work that he's done as well. Um, I know he's even been called into stuff like the Joe Budden podcast on occasion, but he is someone that I think could make um, some moves there. Another person as well, um, G. Robinson, G. Ro- G. Roberson at the Blueprint group also works at maverick and geffen similarly though a lot of hands in a few different things but i do like the experience because there's the experience managing big artists but also being executive roles at geffen and just understanding how things work and i do like the people that can move a bit you know behind the scenes at least to push the label forward given some of the challenges you mentioned so i think there's option there um another person is the third person i would say is felicia fant who is at columbia records she is the head of urban music or co-head of urban music there i think that she has a good understanding both of how hip-hop R&B, black music can be elevated, but also has had plenty of experience outside of that space as well. Like she had done work with JoJo and other artists before. I think she could easily understand how best to help. Okay, what is the next step for someone like Alessia Cara? How do we continue Justin Bieber, even if he isn't selling out stadiums, but can still do arenas or all of the things that I think are involved in that? I think she's continued to kind of level up in each space. And I do think that heading up a label like Def Jam could be a nice opera, a nice opportunity there. Yeah, 
All those uh, picks sound good to me. And I think if uh, Universal and Def Jam go with any of them, they owe us a finder's fee. <laughs> they definitely do. Uh, one quick thing I do want to say before we go to Q&A, because there's been a few talk of two other people that often got brought up for being the head of Def Jam. And I don't think these people should be picked. Um, first person is DJ Khaled. I think there's just too many hands in the, you know, to working on too many different things. I think he has the, you know, personality that can help attract things. Obviously, he can get everybody in the world to come on his um, his albums, but just not what I want to see from these roles here. And it's funny, I saw a few people in the comments say, hell no, hard no. I'm just cracking up. Uh, the the second person I'll say is um, Westside Gun, And he had sent a tweet out a couple months ago that was like, I think I'm actually overqualified to be Def Jam CEO. Um, I like Westside I like Westside Gun. I think he is clearly part of a great movement doing his thing. But what he has been successful at is very different from what I think this record label needs. So, you know, in short, I think he's great at doing kind of what he's doing. And if he ends up running a label, I think it would be an operation more closely aligned to what has been working for the Griselda machine, as opposed to what I think the balance of what something like Def Jam needs. Yeah, it's important to keep in mind with with West Side Gun that he, if you talk to him, and I've interviewed him a few times over the years, he largely sees fashion rebels as the company and griselda as somewhat secondary to that it's a fashion company first to him yeah. so like def jam might be like he doesn't need to do a def jam you know right agreed agreed all right so if you have any questions feel free to put them in the chat box here um i know we have a few minutes left but gary and i can choose the best ones and take it from there I think I saw one here up earlier. Oh, Steve O'Carlos got mentioned a few times. Any thoughts on him, Gary? I mean, I think it's a, a good pick. Absolutely somebody who's worth uh, putting into the mix. You know, there's, there's, I think that, I, I mean, it's somebody who, if we'd done a longer list than six people, his name would have come up. I, I think that's totally fair. So I, I, I'm sure you would. Agree. Yeah, agree for sure. Um, oh, this was a question asked a few minutes ago. What hip hop label would you guys say is currently on top of the game? Hmm. It's like, I guess there's a few ways to answer that. Like who is presently hottest right now at this moment in 2021, as opposed to who I just think, you know, maybe has like the strongest, like brand legacy and all of those things. I mean, QC had a really great year. You just look at how big Lil Baby was and how successful things were there from that perspective. I mean, I think it's pretty hard for a label to, in a short amount of time, really transition from having two superstars. And by that, I'm talking about Migos 2017 to Lil Baby now. I think most times for a label like that, you tend to have maybe one person that leads the charge, no different than how you know, Dreamville has kind of been J. Cole as the guy for a while, but I think you've seen the torch at least shifted a bit for QC. So I'll say QC for now. What about you? Yeah, I think QC is, I think it's a good example. I mean, um, and I've seen Coach K speak. Uh, he did a Red Bull event uh, in Atlanta a couple of years ago, uh, or maybe a year or so. Again, with pandemic, I don't know what year anything is anymore. Everything's a blur, sad uh, <laughs> to say. Um, but I mean, I think he's had a tremendous ear for artists. You know, I think about City Girls. I think about some of the other names on that label. Just like, you know, there, there's a lot to be said 
it's it's a it's a good pick. My answer to that question is nobody, because the reality is that most of the artists that are successful in hip hop right now are signed to some generic ass label underneath a major label umbrella with their vanity imprint. And then generally underneath their vanity imprint are artists who are mid to bad. Very rarely do we have a case where there's like more than that. So the reality to me is the hip hop label is at least in the major label space or, you know, or when you start bringing in empire, you start bringing in, um, you know, I know it's not a one-to-one, but a hit co, you know, but bringing these are 300, which is like, what, what's going on with 300? That's all other podcasts. You know, that's a webinar and a half, you know, like what has happened since uh, Fetty Wap. But the reality is just like, you know, you think about these things where they have partnerships and labels. It's like, and someone's bringing up TDE and, the, and I'm really good. I'm really glad they brought up TDE because like TDE is just like, okay, other than Kendrick, like, and other than SZA, who has a tremendous fan base, it's just sort of like, is is TDE really like commercially with all of their artists? Is J-Rock doing big numbers? I like J-Rock, but is J-Rock doing big numbers? So it's just like, is that just as a brand? And then you also have to realize like, it, Dreamville's another example. It's like, I'm not a J. Cole fan, um, but like those who are, it's just like, are the people who rock J. Cole records, they're not bringing all those other guys platinum. <laughs> They're not bringing those other guys platinum with no features. So it's just like, I think we have moved past that as a thing. Um, I'm much more interested personally and professionally in what indie labels are doing um, that are doing these distribution deals. Um, but I don't think anybody is like on top. That's fair. That's fair. And that's a good note to end on. I know we're at time now. I know there's a bunch of people that ask questions in the chat. Um, so I know that some of you had at least made some connections in there. So um, we obviously can't share the list out of, you know, being confidential and all that. But feel free to make the connections there. But thank you, everybody, for joining. This was fun. Hopefully people think the same way we do, right? Like there's definitely some opportunity with Def Jam, but not all hope is lost. Uh, Gary, anything else before we close out? I wanted to say, I look, I am, I am a longtime Def Jam fan and it pains me to see these past few years and to not see things going in the direction that they ought to go in. And I recognize that I can't have things the way they were. You know, I don't own a boombox anymore at least not a working one. Yeah, I recognize that those days are done and I was there for the golden era and it was great. And I was young and I had hair and it's like, it's not that anymore. And that's fine. I just want to see some wins and I want to see them thrive because I'm the guy who, when Jadakiss or Jeezy drop an album, I'm the guy that goes out and gets it. Like I am that age group that goes out and gets it. So there's hope. I hope somebody from Def Jam was listening to this today and takes it all uh, to heart and realizes that all of our comments and all of our criticism come from a place of love. It's tough love, but it's love. Right. We wouldn't have spent an hour of our time on this if we didn't. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups. 
wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Traffic continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.